I almost feel like we need to just completely get rid of 2021 and 2022 Nebraska. Because if you're trying to draw conclusions on where Nebraska is, what Nebraska is going to be, I don't feel like any of the carryover from the previous regime is going to benefit how you forecast Matt Rule's success. Hello, welcome to Always College Football. I'm your host, Greg McElroy. Along with me, as always, Jack Foster and Mark Kubiak. Man, we hope you are having an amazing day. We hope that spring has gotten off to an excellent start with you. We hope that your team is still in the March Madness Tournament. We hope all those things for you. Unfortunately, we also have some college football that we need to talk to. Well, fortunately, too, if you want. A lot of people aren't focused on football right now, but we are. It never leaves us here at Always College Football, and we have a lot of teams that we want to preview today for the spring season that is upon us. A bunch that start here in the next couple of days or started yesterday, the day before, what have you. A bunch that we want to get to. Ole Miss, Illinois, Baylor, Nebraska, Louisville, Purdue. All those teams, a little preview today for their spring season. And we're going to get to your mailbag. We've been getting to the mailbag regularly ever since you guys started sending in a ton of different questions. So we're going to continue to get in to some of those. So we appreciate you sending those all the time. And we really appreciate that. We'll continue to check those off as they come along. So let's not waste any additional time. Let's talk about it. All right, Ole Miss Rebels are officially on the field right now, and Lane Kiffin has a new defensive coordinator, and he has like seven new quarterbacks on his roster to see exactly how this thing is going to go down. We all know who the quarterback was last year, Jackson Dart. He is the incumbent, but I would not say at this point, I would not say he's the favorite. I would think the favorite right now, based on potential, based on upside, based on the amount of reps he's actually gotten at the college level, I would think that Spencer Sanders, the transfer from Oklahoma State, would be the favorite. He is a four-year starter. The first team all Big 12. He's thrown for a million yards. Okay, He is probably still going to be the guy that I would expect to be under center for the Rebels next year. So what does that mean for Jackson Dart? Well, by the way, those aren't the only two competing for the job. Walker Howard was a five-star quarterback a year ago. He signed at LSU. And after his first year, realizing that he probably wasn't going to get the opportunity to compete this year for the starting spot, he transfers to Ole Miss. So it's a three-way quarterback derby to see exactly who it's going to be. We know that Sanders is a very effective runner. We know that he's been a little bit spotty with his decision-making. We know he's been a little spotty with his accuracy from time to time. But you think about that run game that Ole Miss used so brilliantly last year it'd be hard to envision a scenario in which he's not the guy starting things out. You pair him with Quinshawn Judkins, who led the SEC last year with nearly 1,600 rushing yards as a true freshman. You pair those two together, that's one heck of a recipe for success. So I think it'll be Spencer Sanders. I think they'll pair beautifully with some of the quarterback run game that Oklahoma State used at times when he was the starter. But I also think that Lane Kiffin's going to be able to create the matchups frequently enough for him so that the decision-making that at times plagued him won't necessarily ever come to the forefront. So I don't know how that quarterback derby is going to go. I would think it's going to be Spencer Sanders, but Jackson Dart and Walker Howard very much in the mix as well. Another piece of the Ole Miss spring that is highly intriguing. 
is the addition of a brand new defensive coordinator in Pete Golding. Now, Pete Golding comes over from Alabama. And if you look at Ole Miss defensively the last handful of years, they've kind of been a bit of a mixed bag. They've transitioned from one defense to another defense to being kind of a mixed bag of several different defenses. But primarily, Lane Kiffin has tasked his coordinators with, hey, man, don't give up big plays, keep the ball in front, and hopefully when you get to the red zone, you can hold them to a field goal. That's been the defensive mentality that he's tried to employ. Now, that changed a little bit at times last year, and I would expect it to change even more with Pete Golding at the helm. Pete Golding's a terrific recruiter, but Pete Golden, even though at Alabama, a lot of people ran out of patience with the inconsistencies of the defense, I still think the guy knows how to dial it up. I think he knows how to create advantages for his personnel against the opposing offense. Here's the problem. His personnel is not elite, not like it was at Alabama. Now, you can make a case that maybe Alabama's personnel, with the exception of a few players, Maybe they weren't elite at a few different spots either, but no denying that the personnel that he's dealing with in Oxford, Mississippi is not equal to that of what he dealt with the last handful of years in Tuscaloosa. So Pete Golding, will he run the pattern match style defense? Will he be forced by Lane Kiffin to run some of the defense that they ran before with three deep zone, keep the ball in front? be very interesting to see how that's all going to work out, but I think it's a great opportunity for Ole Miss. I think it was a huge hire for Lane Kiffin, and it should be an important move for Pete Golding as he tries to put his own fingerprints on the defense at all three levels. All right, then bold prediction. The Ole Miss defense will take a considerable step under Pete Golding in 2023. I believe that it will. Now, like I said, your defensive coordinator is only as good as his individual defensive pieces, right? So it's easy for me to say, oh, well, scheme, throw scheme at them and they'll figure it out. It's it's not that easy. In a perfect world, you'd have great players. You'd have erasers that can overcome what would be a bad play call defensively and make the play because all it takes is one guy to win on defense and the play is nullified. It'd be great. Absolutely great if they could identify that piece. But right now, when you watch them on tape, it's difficult to find exactly who that guy's going to be. They have some quality pieces. They have some decent players. They really do. But they have way too much inconsistency, which they had last year. And you would think that Pete Golding, hopefully he can create a little bit more consistency with that defense here as they move forward together in 2024. All right, moving on to the fighting Illini of Illinois. And Brett Bielema did a great job with this group last year. They improved by leaps and bounds. And as a result, they got to replace some key pieces on both sides of the football and their defensive coordinator. So a lot that needs to be done for Illinois this past year. Brett Bielema loses Chase Brown. All right, he was awesome. Ran for over 1,600 yards, had 10 touchdowns, was probably one of the better players in America at his position. They also have to figure out who are going to be the returner. What's the pecking order going to be? Is it going to be a one-man show like it was a year ago, or are they going to go rotational with Reggie Love and Josh McCray? I think anybody's guess at this point who exactly it's going to be. They also have to replace a couple key pieces up front. You lose your center, you lose your right tackle, so you got to figure out exactly where things are. They have a few other running backs that might factor in, but at this point, 
None of us exactly know what the pecking order is going to be. I would say that is of the highest priority this year in the spring season for Illinois. And for the second straight year, Illinois is going to be having to rely on a transfer quarterback. This time, they're hoping that Luke Altmeyer will be just as successful as Tommy DeVito. Now, Altmeyer comes up from Ole Miss. Tommy DeVito, of course, was formerly of Syracuse. So it's going to be interesting. How much will they put on his shoulders? Altmeyer is a natural thrower. I think he has decent athleticism, so he could run if asked, but that's not going to be a huge strength in his game. He's been described by people that are really familiar with this game as a baller. Now it's just about getting the opportunity. Didn't get it last year, was beat out by Jackson Dart. So it'll be interesting to see what he can do now that he is more than likely to be the starting quarterback for the Illini. They also have to break in a new defensive coordinator. So Aaron Henry is the youngest coordinator in the Big Ten, a guy that takes over for Ryan Walters. And we all know Ryan Walters left to take the head coaching job at Purdue. Good luck being able to replace the success of what Illinois did last year. They allowed just 12.7 points per game. They averaged just 273 yards of offense a game. So it's going to be very difficult, very difficult to be able to replicate that defensive prowess from what they were able to create a year ago. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day, but sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. All right, the Baylor Bears hoping to bounce back after what was a very disappointing 2022. It's a team that won the Big 12, a team that won the Sugar Bowl, and then limped their way to a 6-7 and seven finish, including a stretch in November when they went just 1-3 and three and gave up 440 yards of offense per game. So the defense that struggled down the stretch led Dave Aranda to address his defensive coordinator spot. Ron Roberts is out. He decided to go out and get Matt Palich, who by all accounts had been the DC at Oregon the last couple of years. By all accounts, he's the real deal. He was a safeties and special teams coach at Baylor a few years ago. So he's familiar with what things are supposed to look like there in Waco when they're chasing championships. Now, will they be able to do so this year? A lot of that will depend on whether or not they can continue to run the ball at a really high level. Jeff Grimes returns. He's the offensive coordinator. He's been there now for a few years. And they were able to find Richard Reese there down the stretch that showed, hey, this is how things can go when they're running the football. It was not an easy transition from where they were two years ago to where they were last year, but all things are looking Good. After spring season last year, they decided to go with Blake Schappen. 
Chapman over Gary Bohan, who went on to become the starting quarterback at USF. But as of right now, nothing is guaranteed for Blake Chapman. He might very well be the starting quarterback this year, but he's not going to be given that role as of the moment. They bring in Sawyer Robertson, and Sawyer Robertson might be the guy that pushes Schappen to become the player he was bound to become. Remember, yes, Schappen did such a great job in relief and as a spot starter there in 2021. That led to Dave Aranda making the decision after spring of last year. So it's very important now to get him playing to his potential, and hopefully Sawyer Robinson, the transfer from Mississippi State, can push Schappen in that regard. They also, if you look at what they added up front, Baylor is a team that wants to be extremely physical in the run game. We know that, right? So they had to go out and they had to go and identify some pieces along the front that might step in and become immediate difference makers. I think they absolutely have to do this. This has been something last year that was inconsistent. They weren't able to just completely pound away in the run game. So they go out and they get the Barrington brothers, offensive lineman from Spokane, Washington, who played at BYU the last couple of years. You got Campbell, who's six foot six, two hundred ninety-five pounds, played nine games last year, and might be one of those guys that you know could potentially change the things along the front. They also bring in Clark, who's a big prize for the Bears, as they're trying to reinvigorate the offensive set. Now, Clark, six foot six, three hundred and five pounds. He's a senior, played 46 games at BYU, including starting 40, all 13 at left guard last year. So they bring in a couple of key difference makers along the front to help revitalize that run game and to protect Chapin, assuming he gets the starting role again in 2023. All right, moving on to Nebraska. What will Matt Rule do in year number one? Look, we know last year, I almost feel like we need to just completely get rid of of 2021 and 2022 Nebraska. Because if you're trying to draw conclusions on where Nebraska is, what Nebraska is going to be, I don't feel like any of the carryover from the previous regime is going to benefit how you forecast Matt Rule's success. Four and eight last year. We know that Matt Rule takes over for Scott Frost, who was fired after just three games. But he was brought in and is known by everyone as a builder, a guy that knows every square inch of the roster, that knows how it's supposed to look, that knows how to go out and get the pieces, whether it be in recruiting or in the transfer portal, to help make things a whole heck of a lot easier. You look at every single place that Matt Rule has been, every single one, whether it be Temple, whether it be you know what happened at Baylor, whether it be... What could have happened at Carolina? We know the NFL is a little bit of a different animal. The guy's always had success when he's been at the college level. Now, it's a tough task because of where Nebraska currently sits, but I think they're in a really good spot, at least at the moment, to move forward and to be highly competitive. Let's talk a little bit about what is a reasonable expectation for year number one. Okay, Year number one, we know... He's not going to be able to just go in there, wave the magic wand to compete the Big Ten for the championship. I know that. I also know that right now, though, he is going to set the standard. And Matt Rule already is trying to make sure that he understands and every single person on the roster understands what the expectation level is from him 
and what the expectation level is for each and every individual player. Anthony Grant, who led the team in rushing last season, was suspended for the start of spring practice to address off-the-field issues. Now, he was a JUCO transfer, started his career at Florida State, led Nebraska in carries and rushing yards last year. So he is a guy that could potentially be a difference maker. They also, a couple other guys that are not going to be participating at least early on in spring. Tommy Hill, another guy that was suspended to address off-the-field issue. And there were already three players that are no longer associated with the program. Matt Rule came out and announced all these right now. That'd be Tyreek Johnson, Chris Hickman, and James Carney. Now, I, I don't know the specifics of each one of these guys' situations. I don't know that. And I'm frankly, I'm not sure it really matters. But what I do know is that there's a new sheriff in town when it relates to how things are going to be done in the program and how things are going to be done when you are outside the program. So I look at just some of the differences, some of the things that have been decided already. It does appear like he is going to rule with an iron fist. Matt Rule is, and that should hopefully help Nebraska to become a little bit more consistent here in the years to come. Other things of significance. I am somewhat interested, naturally, even though, honestly, I don't feel like Nebraska, and people are probably going to say, Greg, you're crazy. If Nebraska goes out and has a 4-8 and eight season this year, I'm just not going to care. I'm not going to say I won't be disappointed. I'm not going to say I won't be upset for Nebraska fans. But I look at what Matt Rule was the first year that he was at Baylor, and they were awful. Absolutely awful. I think they won two games, whatever it was, and they were really, really bad. And guess what? It didn't matter. He established the culture. He established the foundation. So the success and or failure of Nebraska's program will not be defined early on by wins and losses. It'll be defined by the guys that they can identify, and then they will build from that point forward. So I guess that's not necessarily, maybe that is what Nebraska wants to hear. I, I don't know that. All I know is that he's doing what he believes that he needs to be done to make sure that this team plays consistently and plays at a level that looks a lot different than it did the last couple of years. So he's already gone out, suspending key players. Hey, tough stuff. This is how things are now. Here, in Lincoln, we do things a certain way. And if you don't want to be a part of that, that's fine. You won't be a part of it. So already, I already like what he's doing, even before he gets to some of the personnel decisions that he'll have to make as the spring goes along. All right, bold prediction for Nebraska. They make a bowl game for the first time since the 2016 season. I think they will make a bowl game. I mean, I, I'm not super confident that they'll be able to get it done. I mean, I... I look at their schedule, and obviously it starts with the schedule, right? Like, look at their schedule. At Minnesota, at Colorado. Very difficult start. At Colorado should be a game that they should win, even though I know Colorado's gotten better. Minnesota is going to be a very difficult game there the first Thursday of the season or whatever day that is. Northern Illinois, Louisiana Tech, I mean, three and one would be a great start, I feel like, for Nebraska, but... There's one thing we've learned. They haven't always been super competitive. They haven't always been super consistent, especially against teams they're supposed to beat. You got Northwestern at your place. You got Purdue at your place. You got Maryland at your place. Those are all games that are winnable. Not saying that you're going to win them, but they're all winnable. You get Michigan at your place. Maybe you surprise Michigan, even though that feels a little bit far-fetched. And you got Iowa at your place to finish up the regular season. So I think that going to a bowl game is within reach. 
But if he falls short of that, I'm not going to write up and we're not going to get on this program a year from now and say, yeah, you know what? Last year was a failure. No, because this year is all about planting the seed. This year is all about establishing the culture and establishing the foundation of where the program needs to be down the road. It's not going to be defined by wins and losses. It's going to be defined by how they set the tone for everyone that's going to be a part of the program in the future and changing the way guys are behaving within the program that have not necessarily done it the way Matt Rule wants it done over the last couple of years. All right, moving on to Louisville, right in the ACC. Could there have been a bigger slam dunk than the hire made by the Cardinals by bringing their Louisville native former quarterback home in Jeff Brom? Look, he's Louisville royalty. And I think after the success he had at Purdue the last handful of seasons, it was only right to make him the target and to make him say no. And clearly the second time around when they went after him, he couldn't say no yet again. It's going to be very interesting. A lot of the focus with this group is going to be focused on the quarterbacks. All right. You got a couple of quarterbacks that are in the mix here as far as who might ultimately be the guy. You go out, you bring Jack Plummer, who's going to be battling with Pierce Clarkson. That to me is going to be very interesting. That's the position of note. If you look at what happened at Purdue with Aiden O'Connell. Aiden O'Connell wasn't exactly a highly recruited guy. He was a walk-on. He was a guy that just continued to pave away, continued to chip away, and just got a little better, a little better, a little better. But Jack Plummer was a guy that was inserted into the lineup on several different occasions by Jeff Brom and his staff. It's clearer that they like that young man. It's also clear that this Pierce Clarkson kid, he's a four-star recruit and was, by all accounts, a massive pickup for Louisville. It's very clear that he might be in a position to start day one. Now, Plummer started his career at Purdue, went to Cal last season, but has a lot of familiarity with the offense. Knows exactly how it's supposed to look, but either way, the competition for the position will be significant. You look at some of the other pieces that are certainly up in the air. Jamari Thrash is a guy that's got a lot of juice and should be in a position to catch a lot of passes here in what should be a little bit of a revamp offensive identity defensively I think is another thing that you got to try to figure out look this Louisville defense has had some moments they were pretty good last year and they're pretty active along the front pretty good at the second level as well how will Jeff Brom continue to make sure that that side of the ball like he did at Purdue he did a great job at Purdue in scoring a bunch of points but also being for the most part pretty balanced and not putting a ton of pressure on his defense like wants to run tempo sure but not all the time he has great feel I think for what the defense might need to make sure that they are a complete unit. Look, there was a lot of bad blood. It felt like towards the end of Scott Satterfield's tenure, felt like it was in the best interest of him to pursue another opportunity. He now, of course, is at Cincinnati. Jeff Brom comes in. Everybody wins in this situation. But I think the biggest key for Louisville in year number one, figure out who your quarterback is going to be because that's going to be the guy that will probably be in the mix for leading the ACC in a lot of different categories, assuming they get to throw all over the yard as often as they did at Purdue the last handful of years. All right, seamless transition here from the former Purdue coach who's now at Louisville back to the place that he left in Purdue. Now, Jeff Brom's gone. In comes first-time head coach Ryan Walters. Now, I am extremely optimistic 
about what Ryan Walters did at Illinois and him being able to recreate that success at Purdue. I also love that he took a look back and said, man, what's one here in the past? We need a pass-happy attack. We need to go with some type of air raid disciple. He identified a guy in Graham Harrell who's cut very close to the cloth that was established by Mike Leach back in the day. Now, he'll run the ball some, but that's certainly not going to be a huge part of what he wants to be offensively. I think implementing that offensive system will be of the highest priority. Graham Harrell did so at West Virginia, and then prior to that, he was at USC. And they're going to need to figure out who their quarterback's going to be. Aiden O'Connell is off to the NFL. Incomes transfer from Texas, Hudson Card. I like the marriage here. Hudson Card, I think, is going to fit really nicely in this air raid style of attack. He's got sneaky mobility. There was a point when he was at Texas where they were trying to maybe move him to wide receiver, played a little wide receiver in high school. He's got a pretty solid feel for the pocket. He's got good athleticism, and he's pretty accurate. And I thought there were times last year when he filled in for the injured Quinn Ewers where he was playing a really, really high level of football. Now he gets a shot to do so with his own team. He was a former ESPN 300 recruit. He was ranked the 40th overall player, according to ESPN, and he threw for 928 yards against six touchdowns and one interception last year. So this is a guy that knows what to do with the football, doesn't take unnecessary risks, and filled into the void made by Quinn Ewer's injury admirably last year. Gave him a chance to win against Alabama. It just wasn't meant to be. But I think that's the biggest key. Graham Harrell's got to implement his system, and he's got to make sure that Hudson Card feels really comfortable within this new air raid style of attack for first-year head coach Ryan Walters as they try to replicate the success of the previous regime now with Jeff Brom leaving for Louisville. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. All right, now it's time to get to some of your mailbag questions. We so appreciate you guys sending these in as often as you have. Always collegefootball at gmail.com or you can submit them to our social media handle, always CFB on both Twitter and on Instagram. So if you just continue to send in these questions, we will continue to answer them. So we really appreciate that. And we look forward to answering your questions on a future episode. Coops, what do we got? All right. First question comes from John in Alabama. Do you think it's possible for the SEC to expand to as many as 20 teams? If so, who's in? I think it's possible, but I don't think it's likely in the near term. I think the SEC has long prioritized their footprint. The SEC, unlike the Big Ten, it's not a negative. It's just it's just they're different. Their philosophies are different. The SEC doesn't have any interest in being coast to coast, at least as of right now. Their interest is to maintain the dominance over the southeastern part of the United States. So even when you add a Missouri, you add Oklahoma, you add a Texas, those are all connected in some way 
to previous SEC states. So I think if the SEC were to expand, the highest priorities would be in North Carolina and Virginia. That would be my expectation. So NC State or a UNC, a Virginia Tech, a UVA, those would be the schools that I think would be of the highest priority for the SEC if they decided to expand. The problem with all of those schools is that they are currently under a grant of rights agreement with the ACC. That is a really, really long time from them being able to really do a whole lot. Florida State has recently been outspoken about their willingness to entertain the possibility of leaving early. A lot of people have assumed that Clemson would follow suit. A lot of people feel like some others would follow suit. I, for one, don't view those teams as an absolute slam dunk to join the SEC if, for whatever reason, they got out of their grant of rights agreement. I think the Big Ten might actually go way out of their way to get down under the state of Florida and to get along the East Coast. So I think the Big Ten would be in a position to go beyond that of their current 16 members. Of course, the 16 being with the additions of USC and UCLA. I think the Big Ten is more likely to get to 21st. And I think if some of those teams that you might think would be automatic, no doubt, slam dunks to the SEC, I think the Big Ten might actually have a little bit more say in that than one might assume. All right. Next question comes from Scotty in Colorado. Why not rank teams, especially early in the season, like a golf leaderboard? If multiple teams are trending as number one, Georgia, Tennessee, Michigan, then start again at number four, Ohio State. As the season progresses, put a rule on how many teams can be bunched together at the top. But here's my problem. I mean, when do you start ranking them? I mean, did you start ranking them after a couple of weeks? Because some teams, they play a relatively weak non-conference schedule and then things heat up when they get into the conference play. I mean, how do you know teams are trending up? How do you know teams are, are, are trending in the right direction? Like you get a big win, do you now get lumped with all the ones? To me, it doesn't really make that big of a difference. Like I don't necessarily subscribe to preseason polls. I don't lose my mind over preseason polls. I think they're ludicrous, but I think they're good for television. I think they're good for the consumer. And if it's good for the consumer, it's ultimately good for the sport. I don't like though that we have a tendency to straight, stay strong in our convictions about what we say about teams in the preseason. So for instance, if you had Ohio State number one and they looked awful for the first three weeks, you might still have them at number one because they haven't lost. Simple as that. That, I think, is problematic. So I think if we got rid of polls altogether, it'd probably be good for the greater good when it comes to college football. But you look at the trajectory thing, I don't think you're really doing anything. And the AP poll, there can be ties. But are you really solving any problems with a tie situation where you just rank teams and bunch teams up based on tiers? No, because I think you already have a preconceived notion about what these teams are. So naturally, you are probably, and I for the matter, am probably going to have Georgia in the top tier regardless of what they do because I've seen Georgia play and beat some of the best teams in the country over the last few years. Probably going to have the same expectation about Ohio State. 
Probably going to have the same expectation against about Michigan or Alabama or any of the teams that have constantly been playing at the top of college football. They're going to be in the top tier until proven otherwise. So I don't think you really fix anything by going about it like a golf leaderboard. I appreciate the question. I appreciate the creativity. I just don't know what problem you're solving by going about it in that way. I'm going to hit my own follow-up with this here, McRoy. Do you ever see the TV networks dropping the rankings until the first CFP rankings come out? Or are they too important to get those early season matchups to try to entice television viewers? Well, TV's not the ones that that are putting the numbers next to the name. I mean, it's the AP poll. So I I don't, I mean, and coaches poll, which is the USA Today poll or whatnot. So uh, I, I don't. I don't think necessarily. I think TV stands to benefit from numbers being next to names because you get a top ten matchup. Guess what? That drives eyeballs. Like last year, we did a top fifteen matchup in the second week of the season. We did Florida hosting Kentucky. Both teams were ranked in the top twenty. It was a huge matchup on paper, and it did a massive number. But guess what? Florida and Kentucky both stunk. They weren't even good last year. So did it really matter? No. But that week it mattered because the number was massive on television because everybody thought those two teams might be legit. And everybody thought too, well, those two quarterbacks are going to go and become top five picks potentially down the road. So uh, I think that that polls help the sport more than people realize, but I don't think they should be the end-all be-all. We just have to be willing to adjust. If a team goes out and looks awful but still wins, you have to drop them. If a team goes out and dominates, but you didn't like them in the preseason, you have to reward them by moving them up in your polls. I just don't feel like we have enough of a reaction week to week as we should based on the team's most recent performance. All right, keeping in line with what we've done the last couple of weeks, I'm going to give you a top five because I think that right now it's list season. We're not deep in the heart of list season, but they're good to have a few. Top five favorite traditions in college football. These are my favorite. Okay. So everyone says best. No, it's not best. These are just my favorites. And some, I might add, like Ralphie running onto the field, I've never seen with my own two eyes. So I cannot count that one as of right now. I don't count it. Why? Because I've never seen it. I have to have experienced these things firsthand for me to completely feel as though it's number one, two, three, four. Five. A notable omission that I think most people will have a significant gripe about. I don't have dotting of the I as a number one. Why? I'm not sure because I've been and done games at Columbus. Super cool. Love doing games at Ohio State. But I always felt like the dotting of the I was really, really good tradition. And hey, I actually think when they script Ohio, might even be more impressive. The fact that they somehow find a way to not hit each other as they're doing a cursive Ohio to me blows my mind, but I digress still impressive. Nonetheless, it is however, not number one, not number two, not number three, not number four and not number five at number five, Osceola spear plant at Florida state. Now, part of what I love about when Osceola runs out and they plant the, the spear on the back of Renegade to see all the people there in Doak going absolutely bananas. And then whoo, as he drops it down right on the spear for a big game at night, it is awesome. 
absolutely awesome. I think you 100% have to take that in and see it to believe it for it to be probably to, to have as much of an impact on you as a fan of college sports. Number four, the Iowa Wave. Maybe a little bit of an upset here. Almost had it a little bit higher. I just feel like it's relatively new, but it's certainly probably one of my favorite traditions. How could it not be? It's just such a cool and touching tribute there in Kinnick Stadium to the Children's Hospital that overlooks the field. Just couldn't be cooler. So I love that that has become a new tradition, but one that is revered universally by everybody in college sports. And number three, Howard's Rock, running down the hill at Clemson. You do it for a night game, it's a really special experience. Why do they have to get on buses and go halfway around the stadium? I don't know. That drives me crazy, but that's a conversation for a different day. I love, though, when they run down the field. I always get nervous, I might add. Every time I do a game at Clemson, I'm always a nervous wreck. I'm like, someone's going to fall because you go down the hill, it's actually legit steep. And guys are jumping and they're running. I'm like, I would fall and twist an ankle and be out for the game. That scares me to death. But either way, it's a great way to enter the field and it's a great way to start the game. At number two, Tumor's Corner. Now, people are going to say, you're an Alabama guy. How can Tumor's Corner be up there? Because to me, that's just a really cool tradition. I mean, it's been going on for 60, 70, 80 years, however long it's been. And to have the tr the trees and the oaks out there and to know that after a win, everyone and their brother that loves Auburn is going to be out there rolling the trees. Is it wasteful? Completely. But is it fun? Absolutely. I think it's super cool that multiple generations get to do it. And I think it's super cool that that's been the tradition for them for a very long time. That's as nice a thing as I'll say on Auburn probably ever on this show. And at number one, and how could it be anything other than this? This is such a no-brainer. And the fact that anybody could ever push back on this being the number one tradition in college sports, I think is crazy. March again in the Army-Navy game. It's America's game. It's still one of the coolest experiences I've ever had, not just as a college football fan, but as a citizen of the United States of America to go and to see this for myself and to be on the field watching every single member of the, the Army and the Navy walking onto the field. There have been presidents there that have been there. You've had four-star generals. You've had admirals. It's the most incredible scene you've ever seen. And to think that they have played now, what, 120 times, dating all the way back to 1890, everything about the game is special. And it's just even more special when all the people that love our country, that are love our love our servicemen and women, to see all the support that they get on the field there that day, to me, is a rivalry unlike any other. So Army, Navy by a mile is my number one. What's your number one? Hit us up at alwayscfb or hit us up in our email at alwayscollegefootball at gmail.com. If we have a good or funny response, maybe we'll get to it at some point next week. So we look forward to that. For all of us here at Always College Football, please continue to like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out. It really helps the show out and continue to tell your friends. Word of mouth is huge. Our marketing budget is zero. So please continue to help us out. Tell your friends. Tell them that we talk college football every day and we're going to have a lot of fun throughout the course of it when we visit all, all the episodes that we have between now and football season. Man, we still have a lot that we need to get to and we're going to get there. I can promise you that. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Jack Foster and Mark Kubiak, I'm Greg McElroy. I hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's always college football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.